This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Colossians. You didn't really want to please God. You just wanted to please yourself. And so there wasn't really that conflict. Now there is. And therefore, though God has done a redemptive work in your spirit, in your heart, to change you inside, there's a responsibility that we as Christians have now to crucify the flesh, to die to self, to please God. And that takes discipline, that takes responsibility, and that takes a desire to please God more than ourselves. And that can be excruciatingly painful because we are experiencing a dying to self. The dying to self is not an easy thing to do. As you listen to today's message from Pastor Gary, he shares with you that before you were a Christian, you lived entirely for yourself and your flesh. However, now as a believer in Jesus, you are to live more and more by the Spirit. Pastor Gary explains that the flesh and the Spirit are always at war with one another, but the more you continue to walk in the ways of Jesus and His Spirit, you will experience a plentiful harvest. You will bear much fruit for God. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Colossians chapter 3 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Let's take our Bibles and go to the book of Colossians. We're going to be starting into chapter 3 this evening. Colossians and the third chapter. The first two chapters of Colossians are basically doctrinal, and Paul emphasizes the supremacy of Christ. Then the latter two chapters of Colossians 3 and 4 are practical, and it's about submission to Christ. So the first two chapters are about, here's who Christ is, here's what Christ has done for you. Now, this is the way that you are to walk, chapters 3 and 4. This is how you're to live out your faith. That's the practical side of this book. That's the section we're going to be getting into this evening as we start into chapter 3. But in chapter 1, Paul emphasizes the supremacy of Christ. We went over these things a few weeks ago. He talks about how Jesus is the image, the exact manifestation of God, that he is also the firstborn, having authority and privilege over all creation, that he is the creator of all things. We learn here in Colossians that the one part of the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who had the responsibility and privilege of creation was, in fact, Jesus. He's the creator of all things. And number four, he's the sustainer of all things. He is, number five, the head of the church. Number six, first among the resurrected from the dead. Somebody pointed out to me, well, wait a minute, Jesus raised a few people from the dead. How is he the first of the resurrected from the dead? Yeah, well, everybody that Jesus raised from the dead, he raised the, the son of the, the um, widow of Nain, and then he also raised Lazarus from the dead. But those two died again, remember. So the, the resurrection that we're talking about here is the glorified body, and Jesus was the first to rise from the dead with a glorified body that we too shall receive who know him. And number seven, and he is supreme over everything. Paul just kind of summarizes and says, in case I missed any particular line item, let me just say it this way. He's supreme over everything. And so after emphasizing the supremacy of Christ in chapter 1, chapter 2, 
Paul uh, makes this statement in verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. And then throughout chapter 2, Paul addresses some heresy that had crept into the church at Colossae. And it's difficult to know exactly what this heresy is. When you look at all the things that Paul covers in chapter 2, it's probably an amalgam, a combination of different heresies that we would call humanism, legalism, mysticism, and asceticism. So last, uh, last week we talked about these four types of heresies and how humanism really was the result of Greek influence that taught that man is the center of his universe, man is the center of his destiny, man is all and uh, is the solution to all his problems. Legalism was the result of Jewish influence, the idea that you had to do certain things in terms of rules and regulations in order to get God's favor. Mysticism was the Eastern influence that emphasized the supernatural, and although we do believe in the supernatural, we have to measure those things and weigh those things through scripture to test those things that are supernatural. Paul even mentions here one of the problems at the church of Colossae was that they were so much into the supernatural, they were worshiping angels, also a no-no. And then asceticism is basically the result of religious spiritual influence. It's the concept that if you deprive yourself of certain pleasures or conveniences, even in extreme forms, the idea that if you inflict punishment on yourself, to make sure you never enjoy anything, that'll bring you closer to God. So all of these isms are wrong philosophies that had crept into the church, that were a part of the worldly system, worldly perspective, and the cultural view. But Paul says, you know, don't buy into these things. Listen, follow Christ. He's supreme overall. Have a relationship with him. Don't get into humanism or legalism or mysticism or asceticism. Just follow the Lord and surrender your life to him. So one of the things that you'll notice starting here in chapter three and into chapter four is what we're calling practical Christian living. And I want you to note with me that Paul is going to make the point that practical Christian living is built on the foundation of theological truth. Take a look with me, starting here, chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. He's talking about before you became a Christian. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. And therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. 
Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. One of the things I want to point out to you is that, and I'm going to, I'm going to unpack these verses in the way that Paul writes this section. And the way that he writes is, he, he, he infuses, he kind of blends together, he weaves two concepts. One is, this is who you are in Christ, and, and I'll point those out, I'll, I'll kind of highlight those. He goes, this is who you are in Christ, now I want you to do this. This is who you are in Christ, now I want you to do this. This is who you are in Christ, now I want you to do this. So the best way that I felt I could get my mind around these verses is to first pull out the section of, of references to this is who you are in Christ, and then we'll look at all his many directives in terms of what we're supposed to do as those who are in Christ. Everybody with me? So here's the first thing that he points out here. I'm going, to, I'm going to give you the first three. There's actually five things that he says here about this is the theological truth. This is the foundation about who you are in the Lord. And, and again, now he's writing to the church at Colossae. So he's writing to people who have made a profession of faith in Christ. Uh, obviously, not everybody here might be at that same place. Not everybody here has necessarily uh, put your faith and trust in Christ. You haven't made a profession of faith in Jesus. So uh, you're here perhaps learning or inquiring or kind of curious about all this. But for those who have put your faith and trust in Christ, this is who you are. And one of the things he says there in verse 1 is he says, since then you have been raised with Christ. So that's one of the first things we need to understand. We've been raised with Christ and actually, if you'll go back to chapter 2, verse 12, he uses that same phrase and he, he uh, ties in the concept of water baptism. In chapter 2, verse 12, he says, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. And, and so he's speaking here in chapter 3. And he tied it in in chapter 2 about this concept of you, you've been raised with Christ. In other words, when, when you are a, an unbeliever, where you, you've not put your faith and trust in Christ, there, there is a dying that happens when you come into relationship with Jesus. There is a dying to the old self. There's a dying to the old nature. There's a dying to the old way that you used to live your life. And there is a new life that you experience because of your new relationship with Jesus. And it's this idea that Christ has been raised from the dead. Now you too have been raised with a new life. Now it's not yet in the same sense that Christ was raised from the dead, got a glorified body, ascended back into heaven. One day we'll get that too. Eventually, we get a glorified body, it all gets raised up again. And, uh, and, and it's, it's your, you're going to be now in the Lord, and you have a glorified body, it's imperishable. And so eventually we get a glorified body, we get to be with the Lord forever. But in the sense of living a resurrected life, because Christ has been raised from the dead, you and I should also live a new life. We should live a life that glorifies God and exemplifies Christ. Some people don't, don't grasp this. They come, they come into faith in Christ, they become a Christian, and then they think, now everything about my life is going to be different. Well, everything about your life is different in one wonderful sense of, of the word different. But in another sense, you've just now stepped into a battle like you've never faced before in your life. 
Because before you became a Christian, you were living your life just the way everybody lives their life. To please themselves, whatever you enjoy, whatever you want, whatever you desire. But once you become a Christian and you surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus, an, an interesting thing happens in your very being. Your spirit gets regenerated, but your body does not. Your flesh stays fallen. And that's why eventually we will all experience a physical death, unless Jesus comes first, and then we go to be with him, and we bypass death. Paul says there will be a generation that doesn't experience death in 1 Corinthians 15. Not all shall sleep, but all shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye. But unless that happens, we're all going to experience physical death. And until you experience physical death... There's going to be this war. There's going to be, you know, Peter writes in his first epistle, I think it's chapter 2, 11, Peter talks about how flee evil desires which war against your soul. Because when you become a Christian, now there's this appetite for the things of God, like you didn't have before, but there's still some of those appetites of the sinful nature, that you have to struggle with and wrestle with. And therein is that war. It's like, I want to please God, and I want to please self. I want to please God, and I want to please self. And so in in that becomes this conflict, this war in your soul. Again, before you came to know Christ, there there was no conflict, because you didn't really want to please God. You just wanted to please yourself. And so there wasn't really that conflict. Now there is. And therefore, though God has done a redemptive work in your spirit, in your heart, to change you inside, there's a responsibility that we as Christians have now to crucify the flesh, to die to self, to please God. And that takes discipline, that takes responsibility, and that takes a desire to please God more than ourselves. And that can be excruciatingly painful because we are experiencing a dying to self. And, and so Paul talks here about you've been raised with Christ, so start living a life in honor of the Lord. And then he, number two on the list there, we've died, he says there in verse three, and our life is now hidden with Christ in God. In chapter two, verse 20, he says a, a similar thing. He said, since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world... Okay, so we, we die to self, we die to the principles of this world, we're living a new life, new mindset, new, new motivation. But I love the way he says there in, in verse 3 that you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. David would write in Psalm 32 verse 1, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. God will cover your sins, they are hidden in Christ, and he does not revisit them because we have died and our life is now hidden with Christ in God. And number three, he makes mention there in verse four that we will appear with Christ in glory. So if you die and, and, and go to heaven, when Christ returns, the saints come with the Lord. And there's a period where Christ rules and reigns on the earth for a thousand years. And then after that, this earth is destroyed. There's a new heaven and a new earth. And we will rule and reign with Christ forever. So there is an appearing in glory with Christ. And Paul wants to remind us of that. He goes, look, you know, just in case you start to get a little frustrated living in this world, just remember, glory awaits. That's why Paul would write in in Romans, he talks about how I, I don't consider my present sufferings worth comparing to the glory that awaits me in Christ Jesus. Because he, he knows that there is a reward that far outweighs all the struggles of this world. And uh, we have to keep that, that uh, reminder. 
that when Christ appears, uh, we appear with him in glory. And then he also mentions two more things here in this passage about who we are, the foundation of theological truth. Number four, we have taken off the old self and have put on the new. Now he's, he's making that assumption because that's the life of a Christian. He mentions there in verse 10, he says uh, in verse 9, he says, Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed. See, that's, that's present active tense. It's being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. So we haven't arrived, but we take off the old self. It's, it's language in the Greek like a garment. You take off old clothing, you put on new clothing. So we're being clothed now in Christ. It's our new clothing. And we're in the process of being renewed in knowledge in the image of its, of its creator. And then I love also the way he reminds us in verse 12 that therefore as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, that we are God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. You know, in the Old Testament, God refers to Israel as his chosen people. Now, the church has not replaced Israel, but we've been engrafted into that vine, and now he uses the same language about the church as he, as he has for Israel, that we are his chosen people. In fact, Peter would write in 1 Peter 2.9 that you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you might declare the praises of him who brought you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we, have, we are, are God's chosen people. We are redeemed and we have been reconciled to God through the cross. And then we are to be ambassadors. Paul would write about that in 2 Corinthians 5.20. He says, you know, now listen, we are ambassadors. We, we represent Christ in this world as though God were making his very appeal through us. So we have to represent the king properly as ambassadors and live out our life according to this theological foundation. So that's what he weaves through this passage. Now let's go back and take a look at these verses from the standpoint of how are we to, to live out our lives now? Because he starts in, in verse 1 by saying, since then. So since then, you have been raised with Christ. Now he's going to say, do this. So since, since all this is true, and he weaves it throughout the passage, now do this. And there's 12 things that he says in this passage. Here's, here's the first couple of things that he says. The first one is, set your hearts and minds on things above, not on earthly things. Set your, set your hearts, some translations say set your affections and your minds. Uh, the Greek word is phroneo, it means to exercise the mind. So we have to set our heart, our affections, our desires on the Lord. We have to set our minds on the things above, not on earthly things. We only live here, we're only passing through, but our citizenship is in heaven. It is not here. So we cannot get so earthly minded and so earthly consumed and so earthly focused. We as Christians have to be heavenly minded and heavenly focused and have an eternal perspective of things. And everything in life now will begin to be viewed through the lens of that eternal perspective. So we have to set our hearts on heaven. We have to set our minds on heaven. I, I, you know, I heard, you've heard this saying before, it's growing up in church, I heard this lady always say, now don't be so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. I never met that person. Most of us are so earthly minded, we're always thinking about life here and tomorrow and today and what's going to happen and fears and worries and anxieties and I've just never known anybody who's so heavenly minded they're no earthly good. Oh, that we should be so heavenly minded that we would be no earthly good. 
But our focus should be on heaven, getting our minds off of our earthly stuff. Number two, he mentions in this list, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Now, he lists those things of the earthly nature in verse 5, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. So he mentions five things there, and the first four all have to do with sexual sin. First four have to do with sexual sin. He talks talks about sexual immorality, and that's the Greek word porneo. We get our English word pornography from that word. So it's a very broad word, meaning all things that are sexual sins of various kinds, anything outside of the, the bond of marriage between a man and a woman is sexual sin. Any sexual expression outside of marriage between a man and a woman is sexual sin. That's just... You know, don't shoot the messenger, friends. That's what the Bible teaches. If some of you think, well, that's really out of date and God's not up to speed with the culture. Well, listen, you know, look, God transcends the culture and his advice and counsel for us is far better than what we think in regards to culture or life. You know, I, I had a, a medical doctor who once called me and, and uh, was trying to teach his teenage son about, uh, he didn't go to our church. He was, he was actually our pediatrician when we took our kids to uh, a pediatrician when they were younger. And he wanted, he said, he knew I was a pastor. He said, can you give me a scripture verse? Can you give me a scripture verse for, you know, I'm trying to teach my kids abstinence. Can you give me a scripture verse? And, you know, and, and, and he was a good Catholic. And I was just like, okay, I mean, let me tell you what the Bible says. But, but one of the things I said, I said, doctor, you have 32 reasons you can give your teenage son why he shouldn't engage in, in premarital sex. They're, they're called sexually transmitted diseases. There are 32 Sexually transmitted disease. We only think of syphilis and gonorrhea, but there are 32 sexually transmitted diseases. I said, why don't you start there? Like, in other words, I, I know what the Bible says. It's good counsel. But the, the reason why God gives good counsel is because there are things that can harm us if we're not aware. And so when God says things, it's for our benefit. And so sexual sin is something we have to be mindful of. God created us as sexual beings. Uh, sex is a wonderful gift that he has given uh, to be enjoyed in the context of marriage. But outside of that, it grieves the heart of God and it can actually do damage to us physically, emotionally, spiritually. And so God says, I want my best for you. God's not a killjoy. You know, sometimes we, people think, well, God's just trying to take away my fun. No, he's actually trying to save your life. And he's actually trying to help you. He's actually trying to spare you from heartache and from disease, and, and from um, broken lives, and, and destroyed marriages, and when, when we violate uh, God's gift of, of sex outside of that, that bond of marriage. So sexual immorality, pornea, the Greek word, he talks about impurity in the list. Um, that's just physical or moral impurity. Number three, it mentions there lust, evil desires, which is a longing for what is forbidden. And then he mentions greed here, and he says, which is idolatry. That's an interesting connection, isn't it? How is greed idolatry? Well, greed, or King James talks about it as covetousness. When I covet what doesn't belong to me, when I want something that I don't have, and I just continue to dwell on it and obsess about it, then it becomes an idol in my life. Colossians 2, 6-7 says, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught 
abounding in thanksgiving. Here at Cornerstone Connection, we are committed to providing teaching that helps you become rooted and build up in Christ. Pastor Gary Hamrick is working through Colossians, and it is full of wisdom that will establish your hearts in the faith. If you want to take this one step further, we have companion resources available for you. These digital study guides are for those who want to learn more about today's message. You can find these resources and so much more on our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. While you're there, you can subscribe to our podcast or download our mobile app. Hours of great teaching from God's Word in the palm of your hand. Cornerstone Connection is a ministry out of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. If you're in the area, check out our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc, to find our location and service time. If you have specific prayer requests, you can send them to us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. And remember that we are always giving thanks for you when we pray for you. We can't wait to connect with you again next time at Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know